This episode is brought to you by our friends over at Bedratty. Recently, uh, Will Knights and I were watching the Masters together, and Will Knights never had you know one of the long sleeve Bedratty shirts, and he was watching. We were watching, and he turned to me in the middle of the telecast, and he said, "Hey, man, this might be the best golf watching shirt there is." And I totally agree. It's made with soft Peruvian Pima cotton. And one of the great things about it is it offers up a little bit more dressed up look. Like you don't look like a schmuck like you would if you're wearing a regular t-shirt and you're somewhere. So we have some of these t-shirts up in our uh, pro shop or you can get them online at bedratty.com or hopefully you can get them at your local club or courses pro shop. And if they don't have it, ask for it. Now on to episode 133 of the podcast. Today, I am joined by Al Jamison and David Normoyle. Al is a member at the California Golf Club and was club president in 2006 when the club decided to overhaul their golf course with Kyle Phillips. They underwent a restoration plan on the holes that the original holes that remained of their AV McCann and Alistair McKenzie design golf course, and then they renovated a few of the other holes that were non-original. Uh, the project has been revered among the golf community as one of the most influential and ambitious projects uh, seen by a club. So the end product has been a smashing success. And one of the things I find most interesting has been the drastic culture change that occurred at the club uh, within the membership. So Al comes on to talk about the process, the the highs and lows of the, the restoration and uh, the end results. And after our conversation with Al, revered golf historian David Normoyle joins uh, to give us some background on the California Golf Club's unique history. He, uh, he works with the club as a consulting historian. Um, this pod uh, will lead with a line from David before it goes into our conversation with Al. I just... Uh, Love this line from David. I thought it would be a great way to set the tone for the podcast. Hope you guys enjoy the podcast. And without further ado, here is Al Jamison and David Normoyle. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. When we started working on all the historical stuff and, and trying to find a way to use the past of the California Golf Club to create its future, the thing that I said to Al Jameson and John McGovern, folks who were involved with the Long Range Planning Committee, was how can you honor the name of your course? It's the most ambitious name you can have apart from the National Golf Links of America. It's the California Golf Club. It's not San Francisco or Los Angeles or San Diego, it's the California Golf Club. And so how can you, in everything you do, from golf course to clubhouse to the quality of your membership, to all of your principles that you care about, how can you honor 
the name of your club by offering the finest private golf experience you can in California. That might be a good place to start. So you guys work with David Normoyle, who's a esteemed golf historian, and he's been putting together for a couple of years your history. What has been kind of the most, um, what's then the most shocking thing that he's discovered and, you know, in terms of what is the membership, has the membership uh, appreciated what he's doing? He unearthed some aerial photos at the UCLA library in Los Angeles that we didn't know were around. And, and, and those are very interesting, but I think what David has done is, is articulated for at least the board members and all the members that he's had a chance to interact with the importance of understanding your history and how it relates to the culture of the club and changing the culture of the club is the real goal took 15 months to build a golf course, but it's taken us 10 years to slowly adopt the culture of commensurate with where we are in the eyes of the, the rest of the golf community. And, and David, he has good taste. He's very articulate. The pieces that he writes about golf in general, and us in particular, I think have been very informative and educational. As I said, he can't discover things that weren't there, that, that were lost to history. But he can put these things in perspective and give some guidelines going forward on what we need to do. I think a, a lot of uh, the critics of golf courses, the you know, your Rand Moore sets of, of the world, would say that Cal Club has undergone one of the biggest transformations, not only with its golf course over the past 15 years, but also the culture of the club. You've been a member here for 42 years? 46. 46 years. Um, And we're instrumental in this transformation that's happened. Talk to us a little bit about what Cal Club was like, say, in the late 90s. I'd like to go back a little earlier than that. Because my perspective is when I joined in 1973 as a junior member, many of the older members, they weren't that old at the time, but these were greatest generation people, the World War II people. And, and several of them took me under wing because I had been in Vietnam and they appreciated that. And in 1973, that wasn't too popular. And I gathered from them that if you look at what's happened in America at various periods in history, so there was the Roaring Twenties, which we call the Golden Age of Architecture, then there was a Depression. And then after World War II, there was a lot of golf course construction that was sort of mediocre. And in this particular area, all major metropolitan areas, as it relates to golf, seem to break down into uh, a club that is very established, sort of old money, generational clubs, which would be San Francisco Club here. And then Olympic Club was sort of the everyman's club and a large membership, very active. And then in most major metropolitan areas, you had clubs that were founded in the 20s and 30s that were primarily Jewish clubs, because in those days, many of those other clubs were restricted. 
was just a fact of life. And so that would be like Merced here. My reading of this club was that it had allegiances with San Francisco at one time, before my time. For instance, uh, Eddie Lowry, Francis Wiemet's caddy, was the president of this club in 1947 and simultaneously was the club champ at San Francisco Club. And he was also a Cyprus member. Ken Venturi told me many stories about regular games, Tuesday at San Francisco with Eddie, Harvey Ward, and others. Friday would be here. There was a recession in the 60s that was very severe around here in 1968. I came to this Bay Area in 1970 and, you know, fell in with people who played golf. And, and so anecdotally, I heard about clubs that had fallen upon hard times. And it was in that period of the early 70s that one could get into this club merely by picking up somebody's dues and maybe paying $2,000. Uh, the club underwent a big transformation, and there were lots of people who joined the club as their first experience in golf or in a private club, and they really weren't steeped in the game, didn't play it as kids, didn't play competitively, and their idea, my observation was that this was their country club. However, this location was never conducive to country club activities. It's cold and windy in the spring and summer. Most of the members live a few miles away, and with all the microclimates we have, the weather is much nicer just 10 miles south or in Marin County. And so the club struggled in its identity, and the, so these people who eventually became the leaders of the club in my opinion, didn't have a lot of what we call golf IQ or what I call golf IQ. So your first question was, what, what was it like in the 90s when we undertook to gain control of the board of directors and try to reverse the direction of the club? So by the 1990s, there was the first tech boom. That was let's say 96 to 2000. All of the clubs around here maybe tripled their entrance fees and accumulated capital. There was one club down the peninsula where there was no set fee. It was a bid and ask like a stock. They had a membership trade at $460,000. Cal Club went from Thirty-five thousand dollars to one hundred and two, but some people overbid at one hundred and twenty. Uh, I had been on the board the first time in nineteen ninety-two, from ninety-two to ninety-five, and that was the beginning of that period. the uh, The problem was that most of the other clubs around here undertook improvements to their facilities. Lake Merced brought in Reese Jones in 96. Of course, the Olympic Club, you know, always had resources and opens, and they were always doing work. Uh, San Francisco Club did work. The Peninsula Club in 2001 
closed down for the better part of three seasons and brought in Ron Force to, to bring back some of the Donald Ross features. And so we had done nothing. And worse than that, the additional capital that had been accumulated by the rising entrance fees had been squandered to subsidize operating losses. And in my opinion and the opinion of my friends, the outrage was that uh, the, the directors of the club made no distinction between capital and operating money. And they did not want to raise the dues because they wanted to be popular with their friends. That's maybe the nature of a, a voluntary organization. And so they took much of the fresh capital that came into the club and subsidized operating losses. Well, by 2000, from 2001 to 2003, through a couple of elections, we organized some like-minded individuals to run for the board and did, in fact, get control of the board and started down this path of being more fiscally responsible, but also to address our golf course, which showed the effects of what I call amateur tinkering. In 1991, there were some ill-advised lakes put in that were done with little architectural input. Not only were they ugly, but they were completely out of place. The place was a ribbon of asphalt. It was very wet in the, in the winter because the trees had overgrown the place. The, we took out about 2,000 trees in 1997, and that was because the USGA recommended it, but also there was a Greens chairman by the name of Bill Zirkel, and uh, you know, God bless him, he found a company that would remove the trees for the salvage value of the lumber. And tree work is extremely expensive, and that's why it gets neglected. So you have all this deferred maintenance with trees around here. So that helped a great deal. But that was long before we thought of the Kyle Phillips uh, restoration. In 2003, we had Bradley Klein from Golf Week as a dinner speaker. And Brad had a wonderful PowerPoint uh, presentation about the restoration of classic courses. And the whole, the whole concept that we were trying to imbue in the membership is to make them realize what a gem they had and what it could be. And, and that was, was a hard sell because, as I said earlier, many of the members just, just didn't have that kind of a golf background. Well, once we got that conversation going, then... We knew that we were about we were going to lose our greens because there was a, a chemical for nematodes that was going to be outlawed by 2007, and so we made the case that our greens needed replacement. And most people said, "Okay, that sounds reasonable. Won't be too much money." And then, of course, I I liken that to to dragging the, the voting public, you know, from the goal line to the other end of the field, and so. Uh, okay, we need new greens. And then you say to them, okay, but you can't tear up a green without doing the bunkers. Well, okay. So now you've got them to the 10-yard line. 
And then you remind people that, uh, well, our irrigation system was done 30 years ago and it's past its prime. And, and then reluctantly more people say, well, okay, that sounds reasonable. Now you've got them to the 30-yard line and so forth. And so because the other clubs with whom we compete for members had all done something and we had done nothing, there was that competitive thing too. It's like, you know, how is the club going to be vibrant if you don't keep pace? So in 2005, we interviewed 10 architects. And the idea was to hire somebody to give us a master plan and a proposal for a greens renovation. And that was the thinking. It was pretty modest then. And uh, we went through two rounds of interviews. We cut the field to five. Uh, that's, that's a great story in itself. And I, I think I remember most of them. But they were all interesting fellows, people you would like that you've probably met, Mike DeVries, Brian Silva, David Essler, uh, John Fote, U.S. Amateur winner, uh, Tom Lehman, who spent two hours with me here one Saturday, and, and it was Kyle Phillips, you know, clearly won the day uh, with his, his presentation, his demeanor, his maturity, his background, because when he was being interviewed right in this room, it was evident to me with my history at the club that he had the maturity in the background to handle our members because I knew that it was going to get ugly, and it did. And so he made us think outside the box. We, in our amateurish ways, had a rough idea of a part of the golf course that didn't look right, and that was the corridor along Westboro that had been altered by Robert Trent Jones in the 60s. And I know Ken Venturi, who was a, was a great help during this period, he said the same thing. And so we asked all these architects to come back with a drawing that we ordered. So what would you do in this corner here? And they all dutifully complied, except for Phillips. And when Phillips came back for his second interview, he uh, he wouldn't take the bait. And people said, well, where are the drawings? And he as much as said, you know what? You don't get to look behind the curtain until you hire me. I'm the pro, you're not. And he had a wonderful PowerPoint presentation saying, look, this was the old golf course. It was wonderful, but this is the land you lost. And... You're never going to get that land back. However, you guys are lucky because you have 17 acres in the middle of the property that you never used for golf, which was true. It was up on a hill. It was the highest point on the golf course in 1926. They didn't do that. And so when he walked out of the room, there was a fellow on our committee who had played the tour, made a lot of cuts, there was a member named Dennis Trixler, and, and Dennis turned and said, is there any doubt this is our guy? And Dennis was good friends with Tom Lehman. In fact, he caddied for him a lot on the senior tour. So we hired Phillips. Uh, he came up with the plan of the golf course you see today. He did have some other plans, but we wanted to stay as true as we could to the 1938 aerial photograph. 
And part of that was our consideration with, we had been on the Golf Week Classic 100 list. And I asked Brad Klein, how much can we change and still stay on the list? And he said, well, you know, you can't change the routing. And so our goals were rather modest. In our wildest dreams, we didn't think we'd be where we wound up. And so so Phillips was constrained to that. And he restored, well, I remember I, I went with Phillips to Ken Venturi's house at Rancho Mirage. We spent a day with Ken because, you know, Ken had offered to help. He came up here for several meetings. He had been a friend of mine. I coached his grandchildren in the Little League. His son, Matt, is a very good friend of mine. And I knew that, that Ken's opinion would carry some weight with our older members because we, we needed to get a vote of the members to borrow the money. And that's We needed to finance this. And so Ken, we went to his house, spent a day with him, then Ken came up here, and along with Aaron Oberholzer, who I know you've done a podcast with, uh, and Aaron is, he's just, he's like a son to me. Um, and Ken loved Aaron because Aaron was like like him, public course golfer, self-taught, San Jose State. And so Aaron had won the AT&T the year that we were going to take the vote. And so Aaron and Ken and Kyle, uh, we had a professional videographer, and they made uh, a CD which we sent to all the members where they, they toured the golf course and they looked at different spots. And they were down on what is our driving range today. It used to be the eighth hole. And that was uh, became a very uh, a bone of contention with the members of why are you moving the driving range they liked it close to the pro shop and so forth and so on. And, of course, to have a driving range like we do that doesn't require any netting is, is a bonus that I think most members just don't understand. And it's it's 40, 40 by 50, all grass. And our old driving range was, was squeezed in between the first and second fairways uh, with uh, an asphalt hitting pad and a slice wind. So that really was a pretty easy decision, but it was just a huge uh, shock for people to hear that they had to take a cart and drive 400 yards down to the range. So we then, after those things, we had a dinner here, and uh, Venturi addressed the members, and at that dinner, Overholzer gave the club his AT&T trophy. And, of course, we all thought it was the first of many. Um, and Venturi stood shoulder to shoulder with Kyle Phillips and Aaron. And he said, you know, folks, you get one shot at this and you don't get a mulligan. And to me, that was profound because there were many members that while they, they would go along with it, they wanted to do a piecemeal approach, maybe do nine holes at a time or just fix a few greens. And, of course, Ken understood, and he explained to them, what you don't want is serial fixes that could go on for years. 
Just close it down, completely blow it up, and do it right. And so that's what we wound up doing. We uh, The vote carried to encumber the property with a mortgage, and the board of directors had, had a great deal of leeway in what happened next. There were no more votes to be taken about process. Um, when they scraped the whole place, it was actually, it was frightening to me as someone who had been, you know, the proponent for this. When I came out here and it was all bare dirt, and I said, how, how in the hell do you build a golf course in the middle of an urban environment? I just didn't understand, I didn't understand it because I had never seen it. And so a lot of people, you know, just don't, to this day, they don't understand that the place was just ground down to bare dirt, big drainage ditches, you know, uh, trenches in every fairway, pipe, millions of feet of pipe underground. You, you never look at a golf course the same way in your life until you've seen one built. And this was the first time I had seen one built from the ground up. Most people just thought, well, you're just going to give it a nip and a tuck. It wasn't the case. And the work went so rapidly, it was shocking. I think we were lucky because... While we have neighbors on three sides, we have no housing on the Westboro Boulevard coming in from the freeway, and we brought in 5,000 truckloads of sand. And so that wasn't a big impact on the neighborhood, just created a lot of dust and a lot of mess. And, uh, you know, we went around to neighbors, and we, we power washed a few houses, and we gave them you know, free coupons for the car wash and so forth. But they actually, they started, we got a little bit of a late jump. It was closer to May, but late April or May of 07. And by the last green was seeded in December. Now, we did have some terrible rains in October, and we had some setbacks there where we washed away some seed and we had to do some things that would have been faster. So the, the longest period of time wasn't the construction. It was growing the grass. And so the grow-in period was um, until July of 08 when we reopened. However, we all know what was happening in the economy in 07 when Lehman Brothers blew up and then by 08. Well, Lehman Brothers might have been 08, but the point is it was yeah. starting to go south. That was the worst time for a would have been for a golf course to open, or in your case, exactly, you just have undertaken a, a large sum of debt. Yes, and and plus we had a lot of older members who put themselves on the resigned list. Mm -hmm. And uh, even talk, the, talk about the uh, contention you guys faced from it, you know obviously, I imagine going from greens to greens and irrigation. There was there was some members that were on the other side of the fence of, of we need to completely, you know, blow it up and, and, and restore slash renovate a few holes of this. What, what was that battle like? When you have a, an equity club where the members own it, um, you know, people, obviously they're invested in it. And I think our biggest bone of contention was that we were going very rapidly, and the people who opposed it most vociferously 
um, wanted more input. They wanted more voting. For instance, one one of the opposition's proposal was, well, have Kyle Phillips submit five plans, and we'll vote on the one we like best. That's sort of like this ranked choice voting they do in San Francisco. Um, all of these objections, some of them were some of them were personal, quite frankly, of people that just you know disagreed with the board for a number of reasons. There were people that you know felt there was an agenda to to price them out of the club and it would be more expensive. Uh, there's all these little sort of petty things that happen at a club. And it's interesting because obviously private clubs are a certain slice of America. There's maybe, you know, upper middle class or upper class. But yet, when it comes to their golf course, people can get in terrible fights over it and be very petty. But our contention always was that we we hired a pro, and he didn't need micromanaging from us. And the idea that you know a bunch of amateur golfers would be voting on a plan was was absurd. And the resentment came when I think the, the people who wanted more input, when they realized that the bylaws gave the board tremendous authority. For, to do everything except borrow money. Because once the vote passed to borrow the money, a lot of these people said, well, let, let's vote on doing nine holes at a time like they did at Peninsula Club. And we said, no, you got to read your bylaws more carefully. You don't get to vote on that. So there was a lot of acrimony around that. Um, when we had the rainstorm and, and we had, we had a, a mudslide on seven, there was some of the I told you so's. Um, and, then when, and, and probably d during this time, you know, more and more members are kind of being the si uh, silent or the vocal minority. Yeah, oh, yes. Very vocal. More and more are dropping out at this time, too. Correct. Because they still had to pay dues while the place was closed. Yeah. And then you have to couple on top of that the financial, you know, crisis that went happened. That's correct. Now, they obviously... The financial crisis didn't affect our financing per se because that was locked in. Um, but as far as recruiting members at the previous 100000 plus price, that went out the window. And uh, so, like I said, there were some people that said, see, I told you so, this was a bad idea, and so forth and so on. And then, of course, as I said, they paid dues. 15 months that it was closed. A lot of people didn't like that, but you still, we still ran the operation. We painted the clubhouse. We, we had lunch every day. We left our chipping area open. And, and the thing that I'm really the most proud of is that the golf course contractor, who was the uh, Oliphant company, he was a wonderful guy. He took on our crew and they did about 40 or 50% of the work. So we never laid off anybody. We had our bartenders and locker room attendants. Uh, we taught them, you know, how to paint and scrape, and they, they got the place ready for paint. But when we reopened, I remember our greens crew, many of whom had been here 20 years plus, uh, they had a hat made, and on the back of the hat it said, we built it. So they had ownership. Yeah, 
completely invested and and you know part of the project that's that that can't be overstated i feel like with any project having the the greens crew be a part of it well especially with the tenure i think we had half a dozen guys with 20 years plus we had one fellow who was here almost 50 years so i mean it was unconscionable to think that you could just lay them off and call them back 15 months later and expect them to, you know to to be there a or to not be bitter so and that they, and they come back and whatever you're you're, you know, for example, you switch to fescue grass. So all of a sudden there's new ways of maintaining it. They, whenever you change something at somebody's work, they usually get upset. You know, if you, if, that's correct, <laughs> but they were all a part of building it. So they understood why the change happened and they understood, you know, they were a part of the, you know, different maintenance practices that you were going to put in place. That's correct. And to, to, you know, further make their lives a little more difficult. We, the maintenance building that they had used for years was in the middle of some property that Phillips wanted and it was better for golf. And so we moved all of our personnel to these temporary structures you see in the parking lot. And uh, it's taken now 10 years. We're finally going to build a maintenance building. But so for all these years, you know, they worked out of a, I call them tents, but they're tent buildings and trailers. And we had a mechanic working outdoors in the winter. So, you know, they really, this was their baby. And uh, I never heard a complaint about those working conditions, which clearly were not what you would like. So that was a great success. The So when we opened up for play, recession was kicking us in the teeth. It was September of 08. So how many members before, say, when you were in the process of voting to get to take out the loan versus when the course reopens? We probably had 40 resignations and maybe another 60 or 70 people who had their name on a list to get out. But they had to keep paying dues because there was nobody coming in. So, yeah, there were a lot of unhappy people. And uh, thankfully for us, the, uh, the economy rebounded faster in Silicon Valley than maybe the rest of the country. And we, and we started to get some notoriety. We, got, we immediately got back on the Golf Week Classic list. Uh, Rand Morissette from Golf Club Atlas gave us a big spread in 2008, actually, that's when I first met him. And I, I really think that that drove a lot of high IQ golfers to visit here, and especially Raiders. And so as the economy improved, young people who could afford it were looking for a place to play, who were serious about the game, started to come around. And that, I think, saved us financially is that we have probably turned over 250 people in those years. Uh, we modified the bylaws in 2010, which I think has had a huge impact on the club because we, we created a special category for young men under 40 
and, and we call that the Byron Nelson category because uh, Byron Nelson was a member here and was Ken Venturi's mentor and a good friend of Lowry's. And so when we overhauled the bylaws, we gave the board the latitude to create some ancillary categories other than the owners. So we have national members. We have these Byrons who are under 40 and are paying their way gradually to full status. And we have about 350 you know, owners. And that, that structure has given us uh, a demographic balance. The club's gotten a lot younger anyway. And as I said before, the, uh, the preponderance of new members that have come in are either you know, in the tech business or the financing thereof. So there's the, there's the finance community, the venture community, and the people in technology. And that seems to be the, you know, the main occupation of our members, and that—that's that—that's all you could ask for. Because right now, uh, the club is full. It it has a younger, more vibrant membership. We went from a club that had a very heavy cart culture to a club that is eighty percent walking. We have a caddy program. Caddies aren't mandatory like they are at some places, but more and more people are taking them. We have the youngsters who caddy in the summer from Youth on Course. And it's it's become a place, one of our older members, who's one of my favorite people, he's a retired heart surgeon, he said to me, this is a club for people who are serious about the game. And I think that's true. It's doesn't mean that everybody's a five handicap. No. So some of the most high golf IQ people I know are 17 handicappers. But it's it's people who respect the game and respect what we have here. We've we have brought back one of the golden age classics, which had wandered so far afield from what it was intended to be that that's that's the greatest accomplishment of what we are today. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode is powered by TD Ameritrade. Great players change the game, and TD Ameritrade's innovations have always been game-changing for investors. From being the first brokerage to let you trade on your phone to being the first to feature voice trading on Amazon Alexa, TD Ameritrade has always led the way with breakthrough technology that brings the market to you. Visit tdameritrade.com slash fried egg to learn more. Member SIPC. I think... The story of Cal Club and one of the reasons I asked if you'd come on is is such a, with the culture shift, you know, how the membership has changed, the type of member you have now is, is such a worthwhile story for the rest of the golf world, you know, that looks at renovation, whether it's a, a club in another city, a municipal course where putting the golf, you know, really it was a example of putting the golf first and prioritizing the golf rather than the rest of the club's activities and, and putting forth the best club, a uh, golf course product possible. That's absolutely true. Andy, the, the golf is the priority and it, it had not been the priority by some people who felt they could force country club activities on, on members who didn't want to do it. 
And, you know, they came up with all kinds of schemes. You know, they would, if you brought a, a couple on Sunday, you'd get no green fees if you stayed for dinner and, and this sort of business. And like I said, you know, the old thing about real estate is location, location, location. This location was never meant for country club activities. It's just, it's very harsh here in the, in the spring and summer. So by putting the focus on golf, I think we're identifying the people who appreciate that. As far as the culture, it takes longer to change. And obviously, you turn over members, but you have to educate the new members. And I think a big turning point was 2012 when we hired our general manager, Glenn Smickley. I've said this before, and I've said it publicly, and Glenn knows how I feel. After Kyle Phillips, he's the best thing that happened to us. And the reason is that Glenn was a superintendent by education. He was the grow-in superintendent at the Robert Trent Jones Golf Club in Virginia, over 22 years rising to be the general manager. And he oversaw the first three President's Cups, uh, two as a superintendent, one as a GM. So he's very well versed in all aspects of running a club, but moreover, taking care of a golf course. He also knows everybody in golf. And when he came here, uh, the management of our club, like a lot of clubs, had fallen on uh, various boards of directors who tend to want to micromanage a club's activities. So we, we had a GM who was really not much of a golf guy, and, uh, and then you had the club pro and the superintendent. And what happens at a lot of clubs, it's, it's, sometimes it's, it's comical, but it's tragic. They get like Bushwood, and you have a, a president with a big ego who may or may not know anything about golf. It's, it's kind of similar to what you were talking about with who are we to tell this pro architect what he should do? Correct. We're amateurs, you know, like nobody comes to your job and tells you what to do for, that, has, you know, does something completely different in life. That's exactly right. And so the shift, the paradigm shift was to get the board to buy into the fact that they're there for governance not management. And we have a general manager who is capable in all areas of the operation to be the chief operating officer of this club. Now, the trick was over, you know, several turnovers of board members to get board members to buy into that. Because let's face it, at, at clubs like this, you have, you know, people that own their own businesses, so it's their way or the highway. Uh, you have, you know, corporate executives who, you know, are important people and very capable people. But used to being the bosses, exactly. And so, right now we are there. And I think when when Glenn came on board, the big thing was his background as a superintendent, because we were going through a period where. The golf course budget was not commensurate with the growing status of the golf course. 
And that was a tough sell to some board members. Wait a minute. What do you mean we need this equipment, that equipment? Uh, Why does it cost so much more to keep this fescue this way to keep? Well, because we're a top 100 golf course now. We've got to start acting like one. And and so in, for, for many years, as I alluded to before, the, the dues were artificially suppressed. There was a, a big culture shock in getting the monthly costs where they need to be to be who we are. And we're there now. And a lot of that credit goes to Glenn, where the board said, okay, here's a list of equipment. What do we really need? How can we do this? What can we buy? What can we lease? So forth and so on. And now, you know, he's assembled his staff. He's, he's hired our pro, our food and beverage director. Uh, we have great staff, a, a great clubhouse engineer. We just we have so many great people. I mean, I, I kind of pinch myself every day hoping that none of them go away. And we have a great board of directors who understands the difference between governance and management. And so, you know, knock wood, we can keep going in that direction. I think you touched on it a little bit, but hiring Glenn, who had a clear expertise in your core product, again, once again, you know, the focus on your core product is something I, you know, if you tried to put this on to, say, a public golf scale, it would be, say, you're a municipality, you've got your your parks and recreation board or, you know, part of the municipality is almost like your board and hiring a GM that really gets golf should be their chief focus as opposed to a GM that might know how to run a restaurant. Right. No, there's, there's no doubt about it. And you know, there's other clubs around here that are more country clubbish, but, but they have professional food people and they have a director of golf and big budgets and so forth and so on. That's, that's not who we are. We're all about the golf. In a way, a country club or any golf course, especially one that has food service, a pool, tennis, it's a business that's got more variety than most businesses. You know, most businesses outside of like very large companies are very focused on what they do. So in a way, you, you should almost run all the businesses as separate siloed businesses and allow somebody to run those businesses that are specialized in that. That's true. However, the practical side is uh, most of these clubs have memberships between 350 and 500 people. So you, you, know, you have a limited audience. So therefore, you know, the food and beverage can't make money. So they have quarterly minimums and you know, there are certain things that are particular to, to private clubs that are just, it's, it's a luxury. It's, it's not intended to be a, a profit-making sort of thing. Um, what we're seeing here, I'm seeing it with some of our new members, um, this is their second club, believe it or not. And most of them live further south, where in the summertime the weather is could be 20 or 30 degrees warmer than here. And so they'll belong to a club closer to home that has all those amenities that the family would like. And then this is their place for serious golf. And to me, that's that's a heck of a formula if, if somebody can afford it. Yeah, there's and, and there might not be a ton of people that can afford it, but the I think the balance of, of having the golf and... Hey, nobody joins a country club 
nobody joins a country club be- without golf, right? Those Correct. are like, there's very few, there's a few social clubs, but that, that's a very small number. Nobody's joining a country club for the food. That's correct. Like the food and the pool and the tennis at most country clubs are a sales tool to, to get to play golf there, you know, and to get the whole buy-in of the, of the family. That's correct. So that's, you know, I think that's where every, you know, a lot of its losses where, you know, and this is my opinion is focusing on that stuff is ancillary to the golf course. The golf course should always be your priority because without the golf course, you don't have a club. Yes. And bear in mind though, that even at private clubs, I remember this statistic that the average handicap is 16. Um, I think people appreciate a good golf course if it's a great club that's highly ranked. So if you belong to, well, what are great courses that are also country clubs? There's a lot of them you can name. There's Oak Hill and uh, maybe Medina and that have, you know, a full menu of family activities. But you're right. People take pride in the golf course. And part of it is its reputation and what other people tell them about it. Um, and so that's all we have is the golf course. But but I agree with you that, you know, the primary function of a country club is the golf course. And you have to focus on that and make it as good as it can be. There are some locations that, you know, the golf course is, the land is not quite right, or, but we're so lucky that we still have the majority of this original Golden Age, golden age golf course. We've talked a lot about the overhaul and, you know, all the successes. Is there anything, if you could go back in time, would you do anything differently from you know, the way you guys went about the process? No, I don't think so. There were some things along the way that uh, we may have negotiated a little differently with, with finances and so forth, but it's all, it's water under the bridge now. And uh, I know Kyle Phillips doesn't have any second thoughts. He's, you know, he wants to, we're, we're tweaking the eighth tee a little bit. He, he was never quite happy the way that came out. And he, we're going to raise that a little bit. We've uh, taken out car paths here and there, but you know, I really, there's no regrets about how this came out. We've talked a lot about culture. It's always like for any, whether you're a company or whether you're a club, always something that's evolving, changing. What type of stuff are you guys working on now to continue to evolve the culture and the direction you want it to go? You know, I, I observe this now. I'm, I'm not a board member anymore, and I I think we have a, a terrific board. And we have a reputation as a fun a fun club. Uh, I, I remember during the Open, uh, Sports Illustrated does the Golf Plus edition, and, you know, they said the best of this in the Bay Area, best of that. And, of course, they always vote us the best bar. Um, it is a place that, that people can come and have a great deal of fun and camaraderie. Um, I think what the board is, is we're constantly sensitive to is you can't become a frat house either. So yes, you should have fun, 
but it's still a gentleman's golf club. And I think that's where we're evolving a little bit. And, and it's, it's a fine line. You, you can't have everybody be a, be a scold and say, you know, don't have any fun. But uh, you and I have been to clubs where, you know, things are very quiet and stayed. And, you know, people don't talk above a whisper. Well, this, this club's not like that. We have a younger membership. We have fun. We're very welcoming to the kids. Uh, I know a local country club here where there's no kids under 18 are even allowed in the locker room. Um, we're not like that. This is, this is a place for the members to enjoy. Uh, we try to treat a guest like a member, and we get comments about that all the time. You see a perfect stranger sitting at the bar, and if he looks lonely or he's waiting for his host, one of our members will invariably go up and say, hi, welcome. You, you never want to lose that. Mm-hmm. And, but still, it's, it's a gentleman's club. And for instance, the culture, we've had a few tournaments where we have coat and tie for dinner. Well, coat and tie is a tough sell in Silicon Valley. <laughs> Silicon Valley single-handedly killed fashion in America. But uh, it it just adds a, a touch of class, I think. And so, it's you know, a, those are the little things. It's kind of it's, it's probably the hardest thing is 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 towing the line between being tradi- with tradition, but also being, you know, up with the times. You know, so it's somewhere you people want to hang out, and people want you know that are younger, that are your future owners of the club. Well, that's correct, and and so we. When new people come in, we ask them to purchase a club jacket. And, and I'm sure that there's some of our younger members that sort of wrinkle their nose and go, well, that's that's so Bushwood. That's old, stuffy East Coast clubs. But, you know, there's something to be said for tradition and being well-dressed and well-mannered. Uh, I, I hope that hasn't gone out of style. Well, I mean, you talked about it in when the, the club fell the furthest from its prominence was probably when you had the least amount of members that respected the tradition of the club and the history of the club. I think so. Or they were maybe well-meaning, but but their notion of what a golf club should be was not what it should be. They just didn't know. Nice people, but no golf IQ. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, you know, some of them got in positions of governance. And that's that's another thing I, I'd love to insert here is that I've been around the game my whole life. And I remember even hearing this from my dad in the 1950s on the East Coast that, that uh, the better players at a club, the people who knew the game anyway, usually didn't want to be bothered. They go, come on, I come up here to play golf. I want to be left alone. I don't. I got enough trouble at work. I don't need headaches of being on a volunteer board. That is what causes clubs to go downhill because I saw it happen here. The people who should be running the affairs of the club don't want to be bothered. And so into that vacuum go the people who serve 
who either don't have the background or they have ulterior motives of ego, of this, of wanting to make a statement. And, you know, they serve for all the wrong reasons. And so, you know, not to be melodramatic, but I think it was Edmund Burke who said, tyranny succeeds when good men do nothing. Well, this golf club went pretty far down the wrong road because good men did nothing. And in the years since, we have a, a wonderful member who was the CEO of a professional search firm. And he taught us how to recruit. And we've recruited board members. We've gone to those good men and said, you need to serve. And a lot of them were reluctant. But they're glad they did it once they did it. But we actively recruit, as we say, we look for the best athlete. Because the guy that raises his hand and says, I want to be on the board, I'm always suspicious of that guy. Uh, we want... We try to get people involved early on in the process, get on a committee, get on the greens committee, get on the finance committees, see how the place really works. Most members have no idea what it takes to run a club, what it takes to grow the grass. And we try to get people involved. And then from that, we'll bubble up to the top your best people because it's a big commitment. It's, it, you know, the president of the club winds up here every day and one spell or another and right now we're in the process of building a building but it does take a commitment and finding the people who are willing to make that commitment is the key to sustaining what we have here yeah that i i mean putting stock i i never even thought about that before but when i was a member at a club i would go and didn't want to be talked to about anything it's like almost a refuge place. That's how you get Judge Schmales. <laughs> Bushwood, Bushwood is actually a, a perfect uh, thing for for people. A perfect example of what not to do for everybody. That's correct. It's a, beyond a com, you know a comedic masterpiece. It's actually a great movie to watch and say this is where everybody goes wrong for a second. The old saying: in humor, there is truth. You know, what makes comedians funny? They're usually reflecting on something very true about the human condition. And while it was hyperbole, Bushwood was the model for how many clubs operated. You've obviously invested a ton of uh, time, thought, and you've been out at Cal Club for, you know, such a long time. Half a century almost. Yeah, well, getting there. And... uh when you are out on the golf course, is there a spot on the course where you, you stand and you're like, wow, it gets you kind of every time? Yeah, on the back of the sixth hole, because you look out over the entire back nine. And, uh, of course, you've been here, but for people that are listening that haven't been here, uh, if they look at the aerial photos they can find online, that the, the front nine originally was a, a counterclockwise loop, kind of a link that went around the hill in the middle. And the back nine has six uh, contiguous fairways. So they're really two different architectural styles. And the front nine had been compromised by the street getting put in. But Kyle Phillips, with what he did, 
Now, the front nine's as good as the back nine. Everybody that played here years ago said, boy, the back nine's great. The front nine is just so-so. Now the front nine is, is equal to the back. But the, there's something majestic about the back because you see it all from the sixth screen. That's, and, and you've seen that. It's, just, it's fabulous. And even though there are six contiguous fairways, it doesn't feel cramped. It's not a back-and-forth golf course because there's tremendous scale from the center line of one fairway to the center line of the other. And this is another thing that I learned from Phillips. And uh, he, he's just brilliant. Uh, he's become a friend. Uh, we made him an honorary member. And nothing gets done here without him. And that's, that's another bit of advice that I would give to people who are thinking about doing this. Uh, once, once you've got the work done, and if you've left it to a pro like Phillips, then you can't have amateurs come back in and start to fiddle with it. Because I can tell you, I mean, we weren't open three months and people would come up to me and say, geez, you think we ought to change this over here or cut this? So Phillips was made a member immediately and we have stuck to this. Now it's not in the bylaws or anything, but everybody buys into the fact that nothing happens to this golf course without Phillips signing on. That makes a lot of sense. I, you know, speaking to that back nine, I think what's so cool is that from that point from six, then you kind of descend down and then you pop back up and then you play back down in, in 11. And then it's like you're climbing up a ladder and then you get the dramatic close of the, the short par three, the par five that crests over the hill and then 18 plays right back down into the bowl. There's just so much variety in the topography and the rolls of the land that it, you know, while you're playing back and forth for a stretch of holes, each one, the, the contours that cut through the fairway, where the greens positioned, how the bunkers are arranged are so varied that it's, it's not back and forth golf. That's correct. And of course, um, the wind is the defender of the golf course against the good player and the prevailing wind coming off the ocean is in your face on some very hard holes, like like 13. 15 is a short par 5, but it's dead uphill. And and it's into the wind most of the time. Uh, I, I don't want listeners to get the impression that this is a hilly golf course. The land has nice movement, but the the difference in, in um, elevation, the sixth green is 220 feet above sea level, and the first fairway, the first green is 80 feet. So this is about 160, you know, so it's, it's not a hilly place, but it's got nice movement. It's got enough. So it's easy to walk. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just a pleasure to play every day. And, and the wind, it it's, never plays the same every day. You don't get tired of playing here. Yeah, and then you get different weather so much here, and that it's uh, that it's always changing. Uh, even in the middle of your round, it can sh- shift. I've yes. had that happen. So, Al, I, I really appreciate the time. I hope all of our listeners enjoy and and can take a little bit from this to their home course, home club, because I think Cal Club's uh, been one of the in the past, you know, two decades, clubs that have elevated themselves and golf courses that have improved the most over time. So, Al, appreciate the time, and I hope everybody enjoys this story. Well, I hope so, too. I just hope that somebody can say that, uh, you know, he left the place better than he found it. That's all I ever want to be said. Thank you. The club moved around a little bit, and 
there was a lot of intertwining of some of San Francisco's most prominent clubs with different properties. Tell us a little bit about the early days of uh, of the California Golf Club and the different sites before they finally settled where the golf course is today. Oh, one of my favorite quotes is from an article in one of the California periodicals of the 1920s, which said, if ever a club was born with a silver spoon in its mouth, it was the California Golf Club of San Francisco. And the reason for that is because it inherited both a ready-made golf course and a ready-made clubhouse that they didn't have to acquire. They just simply leased it because the San Francisco Golf Club left the Ingleside property to go pursue uh, their ultimate and final destination. After Ingleside, then they moved over to the current location? Exactly. When, when the California Golf Club was created, it was in an attempt to fill a, a gap in the market. So you had the country club, the San Francisco Golf Club, which, contrary to its current state of affairs, really focused much more on social activities at the time. And then you had municipal golf. And for the keen golfer who wanted neither the social side of things nor the overcrowded beginners on the municipal golf course, there was nothing in the middle. And so that was really the original intent behind the creation of the California Golf Club at Ingleside. But they had one fundamental flaw in all of that, which is they didn't own the land. And so in the early 1920s, taking a look at the landscape, there was a general assumption that all of the land surrounding Lake Merced, which included Ingleside Course, which is now San Francisco State University, and included San Francisco Golf Club, the Olympic Club, Harding Park, all of that, that the land was going to become too valuable for golf courses and was going to be turned into housing. So in uh, a bit of sort of innovative thinking, they decided to move further down the peninsula, seven miles south of Lake Merced, and the land that they found in South San Francisco was they thought the best land available close to San Francisco. And so in 1924, they acquired the property and spent two years building it in 1926, open for good. And of course, there's no way they could have forecasted the Great Depression and everything that followed, which changed everything. And I think one of the things, and this is a, a bit of a tenuous link, but I think it's worth pursuing, is that the creation of the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir, which provided water to the San Francisco Peninsula, changed the value of Lake Merced as a source of water for the citizens of that peninsula. Interesting. With the evolution of California Golf Club, it, to think about where how the San Francisco Golf Club, which now is like a strictly golf club, and what the California Golf Club morphed into over time before the you know undertaking of the renovation, they they kind of flipped roles in a way, a little bit. Yeah, I think there are lots of different ways to look at it, and clubs go go through different lives, and there were periods of time when at the California Golf Club. It was intended to be 36 holes. The land was more than 400 acres, but only 18 holes was ever built. And so through time, it just sort of shrank and shrank, and the land was whittled down either through the sale of properties to keep the club going or eminent domain for a variety of different reasons. But there was a time when tennis courts were considered, which would be anathema to the club today. And so I think 
everything's backwards in a straight line when you look backwards. But at the time, uh, the kind of high golf IQ culture that currently defines the California Golf Club, that's not the story throughout its entire history. With that, with that golf IQ, um, so the course originally, uh, when they moved to the South San Francisco location, the architectural lineage, so it originally was laid out by Vernon McCann, A.V. McCann. Well, even earlier than that, it was actually Willie Locke who was involved with a number of other golf courses on the San Francisco Peninsula. He routed the golf course. And it's interesting to go through the minute books because um, literally two days on the job, Willie Locke was uh, let go and Vernon McCann replaced him as the architect of record in 1924. Unbelievable. Two days. It's got to be one of the shortest... uh shortest stints as a golf course architect in the history of time. Who's to say, but uh, a lot was happening. And then what McCann did uh, over the course of the next year and a half was uh, build a golf course that again, going back to the minutes, uh, the board said was changed materially from the one that Locke had laid out originally, even though some of the holes and routings might've been the same, essentially when it opened for play in 1926, it was a golf course by Vernon McCann. Okay. So, so then it opens in 1926 and, uh, shortly after Alistair McKenzie came in, right? I think Alistair McKenzie and Robert Hunter, it should also be said through the American golf course construction company. They were the ones who, and the details on exactly what occurred are a little bit light, but there was general reconstruction at least a couple of greens were rebuilt and all of the fairway bunkering and bunkering style was adopted. So if you, if you look at photographs from 1926 before Mackenzie Hunter and American golf course construction company got involved, there was none of the sort of Mackenzie style fingering and capes and bays and, and really dramatic artistic bunkers. It was much more oval plain and uh, straightforward in shape. Uh, so what year was that that they came in? 1928 is generally when it's all sort of ascribed. There's a uh, newspaper advertisement, sorry, magazine advertisement from the late 19, I think it's November, December of 1928, which has a photograph of the 10th green at California Golf Club uh, and lists a number of other projects that, the American Golf Construction Company is working on, including the work at Cypress Point. So that gives you your your date for that work. Plus, there's a 1929 aerial photograph that shows uh, the McKenzie-style bunkers still relatively raw uh, in in shape. That's it's amazing with all the aerials. You can kind of track it all. 1929. Then you know, shortly after that, the Great Depression hits. How does the club go through that? I don't think... uh, The interesting thing is there's some photographs from 1940, and it's easy to look back on the 20s and the 30s of this golden age of golf course architecture, and there's no way that anybody (laughs) sort of a reasonably right mind would compare the photographs of the sort of post-McKenzie era in the 1930s when the trees were growing and filling up, and, and nobody would say that that golf course is better than the golf course that the members play today. No chance. Um, 
both in the beauty of the landscape, the architectural features, the balance of the trees, the open spaces, the views, none of that. But the club weathered the storm of, I think, the Great Depression and World War II uh, in a fine way, so that a lot of the leading citizens of San Francisco were members of the California Golf Club, and not just the California Golf Club. One of the interesting things, I'm not sure if Al covered it or not, was how Eddie Lowry was both the president of Cal Club in 1947 and the club champion at San Francisco Golf Club. He, he didn't. So that so that was uh, into the 50s. And when did they start to make major golf course alterations? Well, the fundamental change from a golf course standpoint comes in the middle 1960s because of eminent domain. So the County of San Mateo claims uh, the land on the North side of the golf course, which encompassed the old first, second, sort of third, fourth holes all the way along what's now Westboro Boulevard. And the County paid for the Robert Trent Jones senior design firm to come in in the late sixties and rebuild those holes. So some of the great holes from the early days in the McCann and McKenzie era were lost forever along the creek that's now under Westboro Boulevard. And it was that change architecturally to the golf course, along with some economic challenges in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1970s, that really started to change the culture of the club away from the kind of players golf club that had attracted Ken Venturi and Harvey Ward and Eugene Selvage and George Archer in the 50s and 60s into a different kind of local golf club uh, in the next couple of decades. And so then the club goes on uh, and there are pretty minimal changes until the the renovation from Kyle Phillips, or is there more? Uh, no, I'd say there were some substantial changes. So keep in mind that the Cal Club hosted the 1970 USGA Senior Amateur Championship, which is its one and only USGA Championship. And this was all post Robert Trent Jones changes and ponds had been installed. There was a drop shot par three. Uh, and it was generally accepted that this was an outstanding course. In fact, if you look at the, the club's archive, there's a letter from Frank Hannigan at the USGA, the longtime uh, executive and executive director, talking about the quality of the golf course. Um, as an aside, an interesting point is that Gene Andrews, who won that 1970 senior amateur, is believed to be the first person to win a USJ national championship using an anchored long putter in 1970. Unbelievable. But anyway, it's pretty wild. But as, as the golf course matured and trees grew in the 70s and 80s and finances were difficult and the focus wasn't put into maintenance like it is today, I think the club shifted from, and this is with all due respect to the people who did the best they could at the time they had, it shifted away from a club where golfers came together as a club to just simply a place where people played golf. The membership was much more transitory, coming and going, and the priorities were not about golf. They were about other things. And one of the byproducts of this was in... I can't remember the exact dates right now, but the installation of the ponds on the 11th and the 18th holes. And if you look at some of the photos into the 1990s and early 2000s, uh, when you played that famous 12th hole, looking away from the clubhouse, you had a pond on either side, right and left of you, as you were approaching the par three. 
definitely a stark uh, contrast to today's version. Yeah. Um, would you say well, that? Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say one of the other things is the introduction of things that you wouldn't see at Cal Club now, such as hedges around the tees. Uh, there was a lot of visual clutter and interference in a way that seems completely alien now because the Cal Club landscape is one of the, the cleanest, tightest, most open uh, anywhere in American golf. How would you say what Cal Club was doing and you know what kind of happened with the trees, the hedges, the ponds? It, it was more following the trends, really, of the industry at the time, correct? Uh, yeah, I think the idea that golf clubs exist in a vacuum is completely unreasonable. Golf clubs are cultural byproducts, and people live in that culture. And so they're looking around, and they're seeing what's fashionable. And if water and trees are fashionable, and fountains are fashionable, and hedges are fashionable, then it's hard to resist those forces. And then with with the the changes that they made, so in a way they were somewhat reactionary in this period. And would you say, you know, from a historical standpoint, looking at what we're we're seeing now at the you know the last twenty so years of golf architecture, in a way they they were on the forefront when they underwent the the renovation with Kyle Phillips, where they were on the the leading edge. Well, I think where they were in a, a forefront position is uh, in the category that I think you could best describe as a retrovation. It's not truly a renovation because you're not – there's an effort to restore elements, features, routing, uh, the appeal of the, the original routing and to try and fix the problem with the five holes – so there is a restoration element to it, but when you when you're stripping it down to the studs and putting the the sand amendment that you did and rebuilding all the infrastructure underneath, I mean that's completely a reconstruction of the golf course, but it's being done in an older style. And so I think Cal Club is absolutely one of the the leaders in the clubhouse when it comes to not accepting what you were and not accepting what you are trying to imagine the best that you could possibly be and having the willingness to take the risk to find out what that is. I think that's the core at its core. What's so special is that, that line, you know, not accepting what you are, that, that is the core of what you could learn. Like, and what everybody from a municipal to the club down the street can learn from Cal club in the sense of, Hey, like, we're going to be our own thing and it's going to be, you know, the best we can be, not what somebody else is down the street. Right. Absolutely. And remember, what's the name of the place? The California, the California golf club. And so shouldn't it represent all the best of the pioneering spirit, the frontier ambition of California? I mean, it's not locked into the European traditionalism of East Coast clubs and the patriarchy and patrimony and all these things. I mean, it's California. It's at the edge of Silicon Valley. It's at a risk-taking place, a culture of innovation, all of these buzzwordy things that go around. But these aren't, these aren't new ideas. One of, the, one of the great quotes to me in thinking not about the California Golf Club, but just the environment itself comes from, of all people, A.W. Tillinghast, 
who says in February of 1920, when one stands on a California course, he almost invariably is impressed with a magnificent panorama. The country seems so very big. Everything is on such a gigantic scale that it makes itself felt as well as seen. The trees seem bigger than those usually encountered, and they are. The mountains loom high and extend far. How is it possible to put pocky things in the very heart of such surroundings? And I think if you stand on the back patio at the Cal Club and you take a look at that expansive view in the heart of some of the most densely populated urban areas in the United States, and you've got San Francisco Airport to the south, and you've got uh, the San Bruno Mountains on the other side, and you've got the ocean breezes, and you've got these high Monterey Pines and Cypresses and open spaces, and it's exactly the same view that Tillinghast had nearly 100 years ago. Yeah, that's that's an unbelievable quote, and I that's I think California golf in general, and it's just such a different flavor of golf than the majority of the United States and, and the rest of the world. I mean, when we started working on all the historical stuff and, and trying to find a way to use the past of the California Golf Club to create its future, the thing that I said to Al Jameson and John McGovern, folks who were involved with the Long Range Planning Committee, was how can you honor the name of your course? It's the most ambitious name you can have apart from the National Golf Links of America. It's the California Golf Club. It's not San Francisco or Los Angeles or San Diego. It's the California Golf Club. And so how can you, in everything you do, from golf course to clubhouse to the quality of your membership to all of your principles that you care about, how can you honor the name of your club by offering the finest private golf experience you can in California. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you. 